welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. And today, leading off, we're going to summarize some of the big stories of the past week. The lead story, once again, is the COVID virus, the Omicron virus, which is taking the country by storm. It's hard to believe that it was just last Thanksgiving that it was just a blip, a blip on the radar screen, and now fully 95%. 95% of the COVID infections in the United States is due to the Omicron virus. So we'll talk about exactly how bad it is and what could be the end game. You know, there is a silver lining out of this, and some people are saying, well, maybe it's time to discuss the end game because this could be the last or next to the last big infectious uh, sweep of the country. So we'll talk about the good news and the bad news of the Omicron virus. Then we'll say a few things about the Webb Space Telescope. You know, there was a lot of finger biting going on. However, now the champagne bottles are overflowing. First of all, the Webb Space Telescope had a flawless launch back on Christmas Day last year. Now it's on the verge of unfurling its mirrors. That's right, its mirrors are 20 feet across. Can you imagine mirrors that are 20 feet across? If you're, if you're an amateur astronomer, you're lucky if your telescope has a lens four to six inches across, let alone 20 feet across. And what are we going to get for it? It's a $10 billion machine. What are we going to get with our money for that machine? And then we'll say a few things about outer space. Yes, there's a huge rock out there, a gigantic meteor, fully 3,400 feet across, whizzing by the planet Earth at 47,000 miles per hour. What would happen if a rock that big were to hit the Earth? And what about the future? Are there other rocks out there? Rocks that are comparable to the Empire State Building in height that could really cause a lot of damage. And what are we going to do about it? We'll say a few things about the DART rocket, the first rocket ever to be targeted to look at what it would take to destroy an incoming meteor from outer space. So Bruce Willis, watch out. We're going to talk about how to destroy rocks from outer space with our name on it. And then we'll say a few things on about Mars. Back in the 1980s, around 1984, there was a lot of hoopla around a rock from Mars that seemed to have microbial life, fossil microbial life hidden inside. Well, now we have the latest evidence concerning whether or not life was found on a rock from Mars. And, well, I'll give it away. Nope. The latest evidence seems to indicate that it was an optical illusion of some sort. Well, those are some of the highlights of the past week, so let's just jump right into the big stories. The lead story, once again, is the coronavirus. You know, I'm beginning to sound like a broken record. Every few months, a new breakthrough is being made that causes tremendous amounts of hardship, hospitals overflowing, doctors overworked, uh, funeral parlors, books solid. Yes, it's happening again. 
This time with the Omicron virus, new records are being set every day, breaking records in terms of infection rate, hospitalization rate, but not necessarily death rate. So, in other words, there's a silver lining back there. Now, last Christmas, the Omicron virus was beginning to surge, and in January, that's when it's going to peak. And hopefully by February, it'll start to plateau and even fall off. If it follows the trajectory taken by the virus in South Africa, where it first surfaced. So in other words, there could be there could be a silver lining to this latest version. First of all, the Omicron virus is much more infectious than the Delta. In fact, it's pushing the Delta virus out. It's already replacing the Delta virus in many areas because it is more infectious than previous versions. And Delta, in turn, was more infectious than the Alpha of last year. So we keep getting new generations of the virus which are more infectious than the previous one. But Omicron is different. We now know why. First of all, the death rate and hospitalization rate from the Omicron is unusually low. That was first observed in South Africa, where it came from, and now it's been confirmed in state after state, country after country. The hospitalization rate and the death rate is lower than expected. And now we know why. When you look at the spread of the virus, we find that most of the virus is spread to the upper respiratory tract, like your nose and your throat, not deep into the lungs. And that is the reason why the latest Omicron virus is not as deadly as the Delta in terms of hospitalization rate and death rate. So there's a little silver lining there. That does mean, of course, that doctors are not overworked, that hospitals are reaching maximum capacity, but most of the victims there are the non-vaccinated. So it turns out that if you've been vaccinated and had the booster shot, you may still get the virus, I repeat. You still may get the virus, but it's not going to be as severe as if you were hit with Delta. So what are some new theories now? You know, before on exploration, we just had theories that couldn't be backed up by data. Now the data is pouring in and we're beginning to see a silver lining out there. And that is the fact that the virus is not as dangerous and deadly as previously thought is holding sway. In other words, that blip on the radar screen is actually coming into play, sharp focus, indicating that the virus is concentrating itself in the upper respiratory tract, leaving the lungs alone. And that means fewer deaths, fewer hospitalizations compared to Delta. So what does that mean now for the far future, beyond next month? Well, who knows? But several theories are being proposed. One theory being proposed is even if there's a new mutated virus out there that's even worse than Omicron, that could definitely happen, it'll have to be, first of all, more infectious because to push Omicron out of the way, it would have to infect more people. However, the deadliness of this new mutation, if it exists at all, how deadly it is, is going to be mitigated by the fact that it doesn't want to kill everybody, because then there's no one left to kill. 
It needs victims. So in order to survive, it may mutate to be slightly less dangerous. That's what's happening with Omicron. Omicron fits the bill. It means that it's more infectious, that it pushes Delta out of the way, but it doesn't kill as many people because it needs victims in order to prosper. This means that, well, cross your fingers, this means that it could go the way of the flu. You know, in 1918, we had the Sp Spanish flu virus, which killed more people than World War I. Think about that. Killed more people than World War I, the Spanish flu virus of 1918. But where did it go? One theory is that it's still here. It just mutated to be milder in order to survive. Because if it kills everybody, it has no more victims uh, to infect, and it too will die. And so we think, though we cannot prove, because of course we don't have that much evidence from 1918, but the theory is that the 1918 flu virus is still here, except it's mutated to be much less dangerous than before. So that's the hope. That's the best case scenario. Now, what's the worst case scenario? The worst case scenario is that, well, it's a crapshoot as to what the next generation of the virus may look like. It could be more infectious in order to spread, but it could be even more dangerous. And, you know, the, these viruses do not calculate that they have to kill so many people or else they can't survive. No, no, these viruses don't do a calculation. It's basically trial and error on their part. And the next generation could be even more deadly than this generation. Well, let's cross your fingers and hope that we are now seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. Wouldn't that be great to get back to normal again? Well, what does normal mean when this virus, in some sense, will never go away? Just like the Spanish flu virus probably never went away either. This virus, well, live with it. We may have to live with it for the rest of our lives. Well, let's move on to talk about the Webb Space Telescope. You know, on Christmas Day, a lot of scientists had their fingers crossed, they held their breath, but it was a flawless launch of the Webb Space Telescope. Flawless. Scientists took a deep breath and said, at last, a successor to the Hubble Space Telescope being launched into outer space, costing $10 billion, but worth every penny of it if it works. Now, this week, the Webb Space Telescope is unfurling, unfurling its mirrors. These mirrors are huge, 20 feet across. Think about that. If you're an amateur astronomer, you're likely to have a telescope whose mirror is four to six inches. That's considered a good size, size for a telescope. A reflecting telescope. This reflecting telescope has a mirror 20 feet across. And how big is it? It is 62 feet tall. Think about that. This is not a small telescope by any stretch of the imagination. It's as big as a Mack truck. And to do its duty, it has to, of course, be more sensitive than the Hubble Space Telescope, and it has to be able to capture more light from the stars. Yes, it is seven times, approximately seven times more powerful than the Hubble Space Telescope. Not only that, but the Hubble Space Telescope had a defect, and that is it could only see in the optical and ultraviolet region of the electromagnetic spectrum. 
which means that it could not penetrate dust clouds, which was a real shame. Because when you take pictures of black holes, you want to peer right into the heart of a black hole to see what makes it tick. But you see, that's where the Hubble Space Telescope has problems, because it can't see through lots of dust. In other words, the Webb Space Telescope has infrared cameras, infrared telescopes that can see through heat and can see through dust. That's why we think that this telescope, the Webb, will be able to pick up what is called first light. Now, when the universe exploded 13.8 billion years ago or so, the universe was actually rather dark. There were no stars. Stars did not ignite yet. It took a few hundred million years for stars to finally ignite. And so, in other words, baby pictures of the infant universe only go back to maybe a half a billion years after the Big Bang itself. Before that was the Dark Age. We know almost nothing about that very important era, but that's where the Webb Space Telescope comes in. Using infrared detectors, heat detectors, it'll be able to peer into the heart of galaxies, the heart of nebula, the heart of black holes, and even penetrate into the past. Because the Hubble Space Telescope is a time machine. You know, it takes time for a light to go from point A to point B when you talk about the universe. This, which means that when the Hubble Space Telescope takes pictures of the distant stars, it's looking into the past. How far into the past can you go? 13 billion years into the past, when the universe was only a half a billion years old. Just a little kid. Now, what else can the Hubble what space... Now, what else can the Webb Space Telescope do? It could look into the heart of exoplanets. You know, scientists have logged 4,000 exoplanets orbiting other stars in the galaxy. On average, every single star you see at night has a planet going around it. Now, that's amazing. Go outside. Take a look. Up. Look up. Sometimes people never look up, right? They spend all their life looking down. Well, look up for a change. Look up. Look at the stars, and on average, every single star has a planet going around it. And about 20% of them have Earth-like planets going around them. So the probability of finding Earth-like planets in the galaxy, well, we think there are billions and billions of these stars that have Earth-like planets going around them. But we don't have pictures of them. That's where the web comes in. It turns out the Web Space Telescope is just sensitive enough to begin to take photographs, photographs of some of these planets. <laughs> I mean, this is like Star Trek, when the Enterprise starts to encounter a distant planet in the universe. Well, the web is sensitive enough, we think, to pick up not just the first light from the infant universe, but light from stars that are in the night sky. Not only that, but take a look at black holes. We have a picture of a black hole. It was taken by lashing together about five radio telescopes to get the sensitivity necessary to photograph a black hole. But the image is rather blurry. Well, that's where the web comes in, because the web does not have to worry about these dust clouds that make the pictures so blurry. 
And so the Webb Space Telescope will be able to take pictures of black holes, we think, pictures of the center of the galaxy, pictures of the infant universe when it was only a half a billion years old. So watch for it. A space Telescope, the successor to the Hubble Space Telescope. And speaking about outer space, you know, there's rocks out there, rocks that are pretty big and pretty dangerous, and sometimes they go whizzing right by the Earth. This happened, well, this weekend. There's a rock, 3,400 feet across. Think about that. It's over 10 times the size of a football field. It is gigantic. And it whizzed right by the Earth 1.2 million miles. Now, how far is 1.2 million miles? It's about five times the distance from the Earth to the moon. So in other words, this rock is not going to hit us, but it is going to send a lot of astronomers going back to the drawing board because we're going to have to then calculate what's going to happen centuries from now when this meteor comes back to haunt us. So once again, it's traveling at 47,000 miles per hour. It is 3,400 feet across. It's whizzing by the Earth. It'll pass within 1.2 million miles, which means that it's not going to hit the Earth, at least temporarily. But in the future, who knows? We'll have to do computer programs to work out Newton's laws of motion into the future to see whether there is a chance to hit the Earth. And what are we going to do about it? Well, what can we do about it now? The answer is nothing. That's right. We are sitting ducks. If there's an asteroid out there or meteor detected by your instruments headed toward us, what do we do? Well, we bend over and kiss our butt goodbye because there's nothing we can do. You know, the space shuttle that Bruce Willis used to destroy objects in outer space, forget that. Forget Bruce Willis. Our space shuttle cannot go into deep space. Our space shuttle can only go whizzing around the planet Earth. Think about that. No human except when they went to the moon. No human has ever gone beyond just twirling around the planet Earth, okay? Humans have never been in deep space, that is, going to the moon, more than three days. So in other words, we are children, children when it comes to exploring outer space. Now, what's the worst-case scenario? The worst-case scenario is that a virgin comet, that is a comet making its first pass, around the solar system, does not have a tail. To have a tail, it has to go around the sun to burn off the soot on the surface of the comet. So if it goes through the backside of the sun, we won't be able to see it because of sun glare. But when it comes out, how much time do we finally get when our telescopes can lock in on this gigantic piece of rock coming at us? We'll have just a few weeks. So forget the movies. In the movies, we have a few months to a few years to prepare for an impact. In reality, in a worst-case scenario, not the best case, but the worst-case scenario, we could be caught off guard by a comet that whizzes behind the sun, leaving no tail, until it finally shows its presence, and then we just have a few weeks' warning. Well, what are we going to do about it, given the fact we have no defenses at the present time? Well, NASA sent the DART rocket into space a while ago. Its plan is to divert a meteor or comet that's headed our way. How does it do that? Not with a hydrogen bomb. 
that's probably the worst thing to do because then you have little comments coming at you rather than one big one. And little comments and little meteors can do more damage than a big one. The DART uh, project, this rocket is designed to intercept a rock in outer space and then push it, push it out of the way to see whether it's feasible to do that. Now, there's a lot of uh, unknowns involved. For example, we don't even know whether a meteor is solid or not. Maybe a meteor is actually a collection of small pieces of rock held together by gravity. We don't know. Or maybe it's just one solid piece. But the betting here is that a uh, meteor is, in fact, one solid piece. And you can push it, push it out of the way. So if this object is far enough away from the sun, then if you push it, it takes a minimum amount of rocket fuel to push it out of the way so it misses the planet Earth. That's the game plan. The game plan is to go into deep space, far away from the Earth, close to the meteor or a comet, push it, push it out of the way so that it will just miss the Earth as it passes around the planet Earth. Well, keep your fingers crossed because, well, the dinosaurs, the dinosaurs did not have a space program. And that's why they're not here today. So just remember that when we talk about things like space tourism, is it a waste of money? Well, in some sense, yeah, it is a waste of money, but it's a waste of somebody else's money. Taxpayers are not paying one dime to promote space tourism. But with space tourism comes the technology by which we will one day perhaps intercept a media with our name on it and save all life on the planet Earth. So that's one of the benefits of a program that is a plaything for billionaires. Yes, it is a waste of money to a degree, but the spin-offs of it could be the ability to deflect for real a killer asteroid with our name on it. And speaking about killer asteroids, back in 1984, a rock from Mars landed on the South Pole. This is amazing. Now, first of all, why the South Pole? Well, if you want to pick up a meteorite, go to the South Pole. See, rocks from space hit the South Pole all the time, and they're brownish. The snow in the South Pole is white. Therefore, it's very easy. You just go there and pick them right off the ground. You can actually see them, see them uh, melting through the ice. So that's what scientists do when they want to collect meteorites. They go to the South Pole, where the snow shows you where the meteors have landed. Well, one of them in 1984 turned out to be from Mars. We analyzed the mineral content, the, the uh, atmospheric content, and bingo, bullseye, we found a rock from Mars. We didn't even have to go to Mars. How did it happen? Well, about 4 billion years ago, when the solar system was young, a rock hit Mars, blasted it into space, where it drifted for 4 billion years until it finally landed on the Earth and plowed into the South Pole. Now, why is that interesting? Because when they took samples of the interior of that rock, they found little wormy things. It looked like sick single-celled bacteria or an organism of some sort inside the rock, fossilized, of course. Direct, that created a firestorm of controversy. Did we really have concrete evidence of life on Mars, or was it an optical illusion? Well, that debate went on for decades. I still remember that 
People were taking both sides of the debate. Finally, the latest evidence by the latest crew using all the modern techniques have decided that it was not real. In other words, it was an optical illusion. Sorry about that. We do not have a piece of Mars with Martian life on it on the planet Earth. However, it does force us to contemplate the fact that the solar system might be like a ping-pong game. A ping-pong game where rocks go back and forth from Mars to Earth to Venus to the Moon because they get blasted up by meteor impacts. Then they drift. They drift in outer space for millions of years until the gravity of the Earth or Mars or Venus or the Moon grabs them and then they come plunging down like a meteor, hitting, let's say, the Earth. So we now realize that this may not have been an anomaly, that perhaps there is this interplanetary ping-pong game going on between planets. Now, that could help one theory of the origin of life. Some astronomers believe that life did not start on the Earth, but started in outer space. That's called the panspermia theory, and they justify that as follows. The Earth is about 4.5 billion years old, but about 3.8 billion years ago, that's when life began to flourish in the oceans. But you see, the Earth was molten hot for millions and millions of years, till around 3.8 billion years. So in other words, between 3.5 and 3.8 billion years, we have a paradox. There's not enough time, not enough time to get DNA off the ground. So to get DNA off the ground, it probably took, well, maybe a few billion years, but almost in an instant. You just snap your fingers and boom, DNA lands on the Earth from outer space. That's why some people, including Fred Hoyle, one of the deans of cosmology, Fred Hoyle believed that there was a weak spot in the theory of the origin of life on the planet Earth. Maybe. Just maybe life didn't start on the Earth at all. Maybe life started in outer space. You see, Miller, the Stanley Miller was a grad student back in the 1950s who did an experiment which changed our view of life on the Earth. He took a glass of hydrogen, water, ammonia, horrible chemicals like those found at the beginning of the Earth, put an electric spark in that flask, and just walked away. He came back a week later, he opened the flask, and he found amino acids, the precursors of proteins, proteins, the building blocks of life, for free inside this flask, created by the electric spark that he put inside the flask. In other words, life is for free. Life can flourish all by itself. You don't have to have uh, some magician creating life on a planet. It just starts all by itself. Then the next question is, can DNA get off the ground in the same way? Well, that's a $64,000 question. If you can show that amino acids, proteins, and even DNA can get off the ground just by themselves, just by being left alone in the atmosphere of the early Earth, then not only will you probably get a Nobel Prize, but you'll probably begin to answer the age-old question, how did life on the Earth start? Was it a creator? Was it a lightning bolt? Was it an alien from outer space landing on the Earth and seeding the Earth? Where did life come from in the universe? That question may be answered in the coming years.
And that concludes the first part of Exploration. This is Dr. Michio Kaku inviting you to join us for the second half of Exploration when we talk about fusion power, the power of the stars. Is it possible that one day we could solve the energy crisis, have unlimited energy from seawater by something called fusion power, the power of the sun? Well, stay tuned now for the second half of Exploration. Welcome back to Exploration with Dr. Michio Kaku. In the second half of Exploration, we're going to talk about energy. Energy from the future. You realize that fusion power has been, well, the butt of jokes for many a year. Uh, every 20 years, physicists would say they give us another 20 years and we'll have fusion power. But now, now people are saying, well, maybe, just maybe this could be it. The ITER, the International Thermonuclear Fusion Reactor, will be turned on uh, in southern France just in a few more years. And the Chinese are breaking records in terms of creating fusion machines. So with us today to talk about fusion power, the power of the sun on the Earth, Professor Charles Seif from New York University. And also, let me say a few things about my work. If you want to know more about what I do, go to my website, mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org. I've written five New York Times bestsellers. My latest New York Times bestseller is called The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. And it's about what I do for a living. I work in something called string theory, which we think, which we think might be the fable theory of everything. But also, on Facebook, I have 5 million fans, so find out what I'm up to by going to my website, mkaku.org. So once again, our special guest today is Professor Seif. We're talking about the possibility of unlimited power from the sun, fusion power, the power that energizes the entire universe, in fact. Uh, Professor Seif, um, you're a journalist. However, you've written about cosmology, and now you've written a new book called Sun in a Bottle, The Strange History of Fusion and the Science of Wishful Thinking. So how did you, as a journalist, get interested in things that most journalists avoid, like the plague? Well, I have to say I'm really a physics geek at heart. Um, back before I became a journalist, I studied physics and mathematics, and it was only fairly late in my education that I decided that I was more suited to writing than I was to actually performing uh, uh, scientific work. Mm -hmm. So even at the very beginning of my career, uh, I was uh, interested in writing about physics because that's what I loved. And so um, I, my career has been covering physics uh, for a decade and change. And uh, from the very beginning of the time that I was writing, uh, among my first pieces was a large piece about uh, fusion. And uh, coming from the, the physics point of view, I, I thought of this wonderful 
uh, thing which would solve the world's energy crises. And as a journalist approaching it, I saw that it was a little bit more complex than I, I had initially expected with my physics goggles on. Okay, well, let's just jump right into your book. Uh, your book starts out at some of the hairiest days of the Cold War. In 1945, the United States drops a fission bomb on Hiroshima and another fission bomb on Nagasaki, based on uranium and plutonium. But then in the 1950s, uh, a new race emerges, not with uranium and plutonium, but with the super, the hydrogen bomb. So explain to us what is the difference between the fission bombs that were dropped on Japan and the super, the hydrogen bomb based on fusion. Well, fission and fusion are two sides of the same coin. In some sense, uh, every atom wants to be iron. It has iron envy. So things which are heavier than iron, like uranium and plutonium, want to split apart in the same sense that a ball wants to roll down a hill. And in the process of splitting apart, they release energy. Uh, fusion, on the other hand, takes light elements. Light elements, on some, in some sense, want to stick together and get heavier, getting closer to iron. Uh, it turns out that the fusion end of the reaction is more energetic per atom than fusion uh, than fission. That is, uh, breaking apart atoms gives you a lot of energy, but fusion, uh, sticking them together, gives you a lot, lot more. So at the end of the Manhattan Project, um, when the project ended, um, they, the United States had a bomb that used fission to power it. Uh, in its simplest form, basically all it did was take two hunks of uranium, stick them together, and wham, you get an explosion. Um, so it was easy to do once you got the uranium material uh, to set off the reaction. Uh, Edward Teller, a physicist at the Manhattan Project, uh, was uh, very strongly in favor of using the other side of the coin, fusion, uh, because he realized that it would lead to a weapon of unlimited power, and he called it the super. And the idea basically was to use an explosion, a nuclear uh, a fission explosion, to set off a fusion explosion, which was much, much, much greater. And Teller was right. Um, the weapon that he eventually created was vastly more powerful than even what obliterated Hiroshima and Nagasaki. To give you a sense of scale, uh, Hiroshima was a, about a 14 kiloton explosion, the equivalent of 14,000 tons of TNT exploding at the same place at the same time. The first full fusion test called Ivy Mike um, uh, was 10 megatons, 10 million tons, almost 1,000 times larger than uh, Hiroshima. It evaporated the island it was on. And uh, that was just the beginning. In theory, you can make a fusion bomb as large as you want. Um, the biggest ever detonated was the Russian Tsar Bomba, which was more than 50 megatons of TNT. And uh, after a certain point, it's, it's pointless to get larger because you just wind up uh, lifting a larger and larger column of atmosphere into, uh, into space, so it doesn't do that much more damage. Uh, so uh, even though it promised unlimited power, unless you wanted to destroy the Earth, it, it wasn't that much more effective uh, at uh, doing damage than a, uh, a fission uh, bomb. Uh, but at the same time, um, the Cold War was getting hot. The Russians had detonated their first nuclear weapon uh, way before 
Americans thought they could get it, uh, thanks in part to a spy operation uh, that penetrated Los Alamos. Uh, so a panicked America realized, uh, well, we have to get ahead of the Russians and uh, keep them keep nuclear supremacy. So they turned to Edward Teller's idea of a super bomb as a way of staying ahead of the Russian nuclear weapon industry. And as we know, uh, the Russians caught up very, very quickly, and it turned into a nuclear stalemate where each side had so many weapons in their arsenal that they could destroy the world many times over. And I should also point out that when I was in high school, uh, Edward Teller was actually my advisor, and he actually sort of guided my career in, in the early years uh, when I was at Harvard. However, moving on now, uh, we have the Cold War in full swing, and people are now used to the idea that there is a bomb a thousand times more powerful than the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bomb. But other people have said, well, look at Mother Nature. Mother Nature uses fusion to light up the heavens. So now explain to us how Mother Nature uses the process of fusion, not fission, to light up the universe. Yes, it's, it's, fusion is responsible for all life on Earth. Um, the sun is essentially a big ball of hydrogen. It's hydrogen gas. Uh, and when it was coalescing, uh, it was compressing itself under its own gravity. And collapsing, compressing objects get hot in general. And so you've got this ball of hydrogen that got hot and dense, hotter and denser. And eventually it got so hot and so dense that the hydrogen, uh, moving extremely fast because of the energy uh, of the temperature, the, the, the high temperatures involved, started slamming into each other with enough force to cause fusion reactions. So once you get a big ball of gas large enough uh, to collapse under its own gravity and heat each other, heat everything up uh, high enough, you get a fusion reaction. And the fusion reaction is what makes the sun shine. Uh, these hydrogens getting converted eventually into helium release energy, and that energy shines out in all directions. That's what makes stars shine. But it's, this reaction is extraordinarily difficult to get going. You need such an enormous ball of hydrogen um, to kickstart that fusion reaction uh, that it, it, it's hard to do. Um, even a mass of hydrogen the size of Jupiter, Jupiter is almost like a star. The problem is it's not large enough to get so hot that you start that fusion reaction in its belly. So Jupiter is, in, in essence, everything that a star has except just that extra gravitational oomph to get it hot enough and tight enough to ignite. And in fact, in the movie 2010, Arthur C. Clarke talks about uh, aliens igniting Jupiter, so our solar system becomes a double star system. However, Jupiter would have to be about 10 times bigger uh, at minimum, in order to get uh, ignition. Now, let's talk about the promise, the promise of fusion. Why has fusion um, hypnotized whole generations of inventors and quacks and top physicists? What is the promise of fusion? Why is there so much interest in it? Why have so many charlatans jumped into the game? Imagine if you had a sun on your desktop, that in a little bottle you had a fusion reaction going. If you could get this, if you could have something like this, you basically have an unlimited source of energy. Um, hydrogen is abundant. It's the most abundant element in the universe. It's everywhere. It's in the oceans. It's, it's, uh, uh, water is 
two atoms of, of hydrogen for one atom of oxygen. So if you were able to tap into the sun's reaction and turn hydrogen into helium and releasing energy in the process, you can turn this un, virtually unlimited source of fuel into energy for free. And because the fusion reaction, if, if, you, if you manage to uh, get it working in the right way, you could just keep feeding hydrogen in and helium and energy come out. And helium is clean. I mean, if you, if you wanted to, you could release it into the atmosphere and it would float up into space. Um, and so this promises, in theory, um, unlimited energy with unlimited fuel and no waste. Reality is not quite as simple as that, but that is the promise. Okay, and for Spider-Man fans, uh, for those people who saw Spider-Man 2, uh, Dr. Octopus creates fusion in his laboratory in Manhattan, which is not the place to do it. But the machine looks like a little sun. It looks like actually a star. You can see uh, sunspots and solar flares on this miniature sun. However, in real life, uh, we don't expect to create a miniature sun like in Spider-Man 2. What will a fusion reactor really look like? Well, there's two main areas that uh, mainstream fusion researchers are looking at to make a, a, a real fusion reactor, and they are lasers and magnets. Uh, lasers uh, are a very clever way of getting the heat and pressure that you need to take a hydrogen pellet and make it collapse and start fusing. Basically, you shine laser light at all from all directions, and you squash a tiny pellet and as it squashes, it compresses, uh, and hopefully it ignites. And if you manage to get lasers that are strong and efficient enough uh, that you create more energy uh, out of that collapsing, fusing, tiny pellet of hydrogen than you consume by getting the lasers going in the first place, then you've got a source of energy. You've got a, uh, a fusion reactor. Um, no one has gotten that far, but it is theoretically possible. Another method is using magnets. Uh, it turns out that magnetic fields uh, affect fusing plasmas like hydrogen. And if you shape a magnetic field right, you can create a bottle with which to contain a very hot uh, cloud of hydrogen. And so uh, a magnetic donut shaped right and uh, with a cloud of hydrogen you throw heat in, eventually you might get a fusing plasma. And once you get that reaction going, you just ha have to figure out a way of uh, piping new hydrogen in and piping uh, fused helium out, and you've got a source of energy going. Again, uh, these uh, magnetic bottles aren't working to the point where you, put, you get more energy out than you put in uh, heating the plasma and containing it. But in theory, uh, if our magnets improve and our, our knowledge improves over time, you might have a magnetic bottle that contains a miniature sun. Okay, now, because a fusion machine would use ordinary seawater, which is unlimitless, pretty much, as the basic uh, energy source, and because the energy released is almost limitless, the number of uh, charlatans and quacks that have gone into the business is quite large. So let's talk about some of the false starts and some of the dashed hopes uh, beginning with a Dr. Richter, but the list is long. Let's talk about some of the false starts. Yes, it's, the, the, the goal is so lofty, that the unlimited energy, that the idea of fusion has attracted uh, quacks and hoaxers 
and genuine scientists who are misguided uh, from the very beginning. Um, in 1951, the world was absolutely stunned to headlines that Argentina, of all places, had solved our energy problems forever. There was an ex, a German expat named Ronald Richter who had convinced Juan Perón to fund a research laboratory on a secret island in the middle of a lake uh, to get fusion reactions going in what he called a solar thermotron. Um, and he kept the world going for about a year. People were arguing back and forth. Could he have done it? Could he not have done it? It turns out Richter was uh, barking mad. Um, he uh, would get this wild look in his eyes and dump a whole bunch of gunpowder into his experiment and blow the doors off of his laboratory in gigantic explosions and rush out and write uh, fusion on a piece of ticker tape. Um, and yet, for many, for many, many months, he kept Juan Perón's government believing that uh, he was on his way to solving the world's energy crises, and this would be a great prestige for Argentina. Uh, eventually, uh, physicists in Argentina convinced Perón that something was going on uh, that was a little fishy. They went and visited the, the laboratory with their own Geiger counters, and if, in fact, you have fusion reactions going, you should be able to detect neutron radiation coming off and they detected nothing. So they proved that Ronald Richter was uh, perpetrating a fraud. And contemporary accounts say that he wasted between $4 million and $70 million of the Argentinian uh, treasury in the process of uh, pursuing his dream. Uh, and uh, he disappeared off the world stage very rapidly, as you can imagine. Um, but, in fact, uh, everyone who is involved in fusion, some uh, form winds up deceiving themselves or deceiving others about their achievements. In 1958, um, British scientists uh, at a very, very prestigious lab built this machine called Zeta. Uh, Zeta was a magnetic bottle of sorts, and the scientists had convinced themselves that they had gotten fusion in a laboratory, and uh, they cracked open beers, they announced to the world that they were on their way to solving the world's energy crises. Um, turns out that they were wrong, uh, that they were not seeing fusion, that they were deceiving themselves with uh, neutrons. They were seeing neutrons, but it wasn't from fusion that they wanted. Uh, so they had to humiliate themselves on the world stage. After all these tabloids say, said, uh, energy to last, last a lifetime, uh, no, no more energy bills, the British teams had to say, well, uh, not really. Okay, now more recently, uh, we had this huge fiasco concerning uh, two chemists, uh, Pons and Fleischmann, who grabbed world attention. Uh, covers of, I think, Newsweek magazine and the New York Times, and everyone was talking about, well, did Pons and Fleischmann create fusion in a bottle? Not hot fusion, the hot fusion of lasers and magnets, but cold fusion. So tell us a little bit about cold fusion. Yes, yes. In, in 1989, two chemists, uh, one of whom was extremely well uh, uh, celebrated, made this announcement to the press that absolutely stunned the world. They claimed that where these hot fusion, this magnetic fusion, this laser fusion uh, research has been failing for years, wasting tens of billions of dollars, these two chemists, uh, working independently, had spent $100,000, and they had solved the problem. And what they argued was that they managed to pipe hydrogen into a chunk of metal, a palladium, 
which has the interesting property that soaks up hydrogen like a sponge. And the theory was that if you get enough hydrogen in there, uh, the hydrogen will be forced so close together that they might be forced to fuse. And in doing the research on their own, they thought they saw more energy coming out of their palladium cell than was going in. So they thought they had created a device which was creating fusion energy. Um, so as you can imagine, as soon as this was announced, it was headlines everywhere, cover of Time, cover of Newsweek, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, everywhere was talking about this for months and months and months. Um, it turned out that the scientists were deceiving themselves. Uh, there was a bit of fishiness. Uh, some data was moving back and forth. It's uncertain exactly what was going on, but it, when the cells were reproduced in better circumstances with more sophisticated equipment, it turned out that there was no excess energy, and more importantly, there were no neutrons coming out. It turns out when you fuse heavy forms of hydrogen together, you expect neutrons to fly away, and neutrons are a sign of fusion. They were seeing no neutrons, and that made it pretty clear that nothing was actually happening. No. However, it yeah. took these, these uh, it was a huge battle for, for years. It, uh, physicists versus chemists became a red state versus blue state thing, uh, where the liberal elite physicists on the East Coast were trying to tear down a research from chemists at the University of Utah. Uh, so it became a huge political battle that still affects the physics community on some level. Now, you can simply calculate, using the back of an envelope, the uh, neutron count that would occur if they really had fusion in a bottle, and it's sufficient to kill them. So the very fact that Pons and Fleischmann are still alive uh, means that they could not possibly have attained fusion in a bottle. But then the question is, well, what did they attain? They did get net energy coming out. That's been verified by different laboratories. Some people have gone back to the literature on palladium back in the 1800s, it turns out that a person applied for a patent for one of the first cigarette lighters. He used palladium, put it in water, and attained a net amount of energy, which he used to light a flame. And he got a patent for it, uh, a palladium uh, cigarette lighter. And some people think that that's what they discovered. Well, what are your thoughts? It's been several years since then. What did Pons and Fleischmann really have in their bottle that gave energy? Was it a cigarette lighter or, or what? It's really hard to tell. Palladium has an extraordinarily interesting chemistry. Uh, it has been fooling researchers for years, as you've, as you've noted, that not only is there that patent, uh, a number uh, in the early 20th century, two researchers uh, thought they had achieved fusion in palladium. And uh, because they, they came to, were thinking along the same lines as Pons and Fleischmann were, and they thought they detected helium inside, an excess of helium inside palladium. Uh, which would be a nice sign of fusion because you're creating helium. It turns out that they were deceiving themselves because it turns out uh, palladium soaks up helium just as well as it soaks up hydrogen, so you have enriched helium. So if they were seeing excess energy, and it's not entirely clear from the setup of the experiments that they were, I mean, they certainly thought they were. there was some sloppiness, um, but it's certainly possible that they, they were seeing it. It would most likely be a a matter of chemistry, a chemical reaction where bonds are breaking uh, rather than a nuclear reaction uh, where 
bonds in the center of a nucleus are being formed, that, that uh, uh, the nuclear bonds that change atoms into other atoms uh, are what are changed in a fusion reaction, as opposed to the attachments between atoms, which are chemical bonds, which are being changed in a chemical reaction like burning paper or, or cracking water. And so whatever they were seeing almost certainly was a chemical reaction. And chemical reactions are well studied, and there's only so much you can do for solving the world's energy uh, problems with chemical reactions. In fact, burning gasoline is an extraordinarily efficient chemical reaction that allows us to power our cars. Um, so it's not certain that there's anything there for solving the world's energy uh, problems unless you have a nuclear reaction of some sort. It's pretty clear that that is not what they saw. Now, to a physicist, it was absolutely staggering that you had these two respected chemists that didn't understand anything about the quantum theory. If you, if you bring the protons together very closely, as you mentioned, then you could attain fusion. But you have to bring them really close, uh, 10 to the minus 13 centimeters. However, in the, the Pons and Fleischmann experiment, these atoms are separated by 10 to the minus 8 centimeters, and you can simply, using a back of an envelope calculation, this is what we give our undergraduates. Our undergraduates can calculate that the fusion you get in a bottle is almost zero as a consequence. So for the physics community, what was absolutely staggering is the fact that chemists don't know any physics at all. Well, let's move on because we had a story, another apparently fraudulent story that just took place a few months ago this time at Oak Ridge National Laboratory, involving something called bubble fusion. So explain to us what is bubble fusion and how did the Nazis, of all people, first stumble onto this whole thing called sonoluminescence? Yes, uh, sonoluminescence is this really bizarre um, reaction, and it's, it's only very recently been understood, uh, where uh, basically you take sound waves, and you bombard a liquid with it, and you induce what's called cavitation. Under the right circumstances, if you hit water very hard, it actually behaves like a solid, and it can crack. And just for a tiny, tiny fraction of a second, you can cause a crack in water. And what happens when you have that crack is you create a little vacuum, and that vacuum causes water to evaporate and causes a bubble. Um, by bombarding liquids with sound waves, you cause these bubbles, and if you time those sound waves just right, you can cause those bubbles to collapse very dramatically. And uh, it was discovered that if you do this just right, you get such a dramatic collapse that you get some sort of reaction. No one quite knows exactly what it is, even today, um, that causes a little flash of blue light. Well, that concludes our interview with Professor Charles Seif, Professor of Journalism at New York University, talking about the prospects for fusion power. 
However, in all honesty, I have to say that after the interview was taped, there have been several other developments with regards to fusion power. First of all, the Chinese. The Chinese have set a new record for keeping the plasma of a fusion reactor stable. And as a consequence, they say they were beginning to close in on what is called Lawson's Criterion when we can actually attain fusion power. And also in California, we have uh, laser fusion experiments being conducted, and they too are now setting world's records. But does that mean we're going to have fusion tomorrow? No. However, we should say that within about three years or so, the ITER fusion reactor will be turned on. This is the mother of all fusion reactors. It is huge, it is gigantic, and the European Union is behind it. So not just the United States, not just the Europeans, but also the Japanese and the Russians, the Chinese, they want a piece of the action. And so watch for it. We think that perhaps within three years or so, they will attain break-even. That is gaining as much energy out as you put in. And then the commercialization of fusion, keep your fingers crossed, the commercialization of fusion may take place around mid-century. Now, just remember that the worst effects of global warming are going to probably kick in later in this century. We're not talking about an immediate collapse of the weather. We're talking about a slow disintegration of the poles and increasing in temperature on the planet Earth. And hopefully, hopefully a combination of solar, wind power, renewable technology, and fusion power will come to the rescue. But it's going to be close. But let's hope, let's hope that we can rein in global warming and use high technology like fusion reactors to usher in a new age. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku. Go to my website, mkaku.org, to find out more about my work. Good day.